Hello, everybody. I'm Bob Luz, President and CEO of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, and I want to welcome you to Together We Win, the MRA podcast. So let's get going. Well, welcome to our latest installment of Together We Win. Uh, my teammates here in crime are back at the table. Kerry's even got a big boy seat for this uh, episode. Uh, he, we moved him from his uh, seat that was too low to sit at the table, uh, brought him up from the kids' table to sit at the adult table. Very happy to see that. Kerry, welcome. Congratulations. Yeah, ha- having horrific uh, flashbacks to Thanksgiving when I was at the kiddies' table and finally getting Paul called yeah. up to the adult table. Yeah. Steve, how are you go- How are you doing? Everything all right? We're doing all right. You know, kids back in school. We got Congress back in session and people starting to get back to work. Hopefully Congress gets working on the RRF and putting some more money into the hands of, of restaurant owners and, you know, just back to business. It's, it's good to be back. Yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, I'll tell you, you know, after a summer uh, being back at Fenway Park, I, I got to tell you, it felt really, really good. Uh, I made a couple of games this summer. Um, and, you know, obviously in the beginning of August, late August, we saw couple of preseason games and now the 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 Patriots are back on uh on the big turf with a big full stadium and and it's really uh it's heartwarming to see honestly don't you think oh yeah I mean I think the fact that you got the Cam Mac thing going on right and and you talk about vaccination protocols I mean if you're unvaccinated and you get sick you are on a 10-day uh, a restriction, and you could actually lose your position and have a new starter guy come in. And not that I'm hoping for that, but uh, it's there. It's real. Car- Kerry Miller calling for the demise of Cam Newton and the elevation of Mac Jones, apparently. I think I am. Uh, who knows if he's uh, uh, seeing the future clearly or not. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see here. Steve? Well, you know, we, we, as we have these conversations late in training camp, you never know what's going to happen with the season and, and what's going to happen. But I, I think the Patriots are putting things together. And, uh, you know, it, it, again, you talked about going to the Red Sox game. It, it's great to just be out and, and living life. And I, I, I think we've recognized as a society that we're going to be living with some form of COVID, coronavirus, Delta variant, whatever it is. There's always going to be some factor of there. And it's just a matter of maximizing our life and living with it. And, and I think we have the tools in our society to be able to do that and adjust to it. And we're really, um, you know, it, it's something that's, it's going to become a part of life. I don't think we'll ever have a conversation when we said, hey, remember that time we had coronavirus. I think there's always going to be a situation where we're having those conversations. We're always making adjustments. We're always adjusting life. Yeah. I mean, here we are as we're, we're approaching, you know, 19, 20 months of this. And, uh, you know, Remember, we thought it was going to be a three-week shutdown. And uh, uh, to your point, uh, we still have unfinished business. Um, the, uh, the the legislature, the Congress is coming back uh, into session here uh, this month. And, and Steve, you and I have, have never stopped uh, advocating on behalf of restaurants uh, with our delegation up north and certainly along with the national across uh, the, the whole federal level. Uh, and uh, and we do have that unfinished business, and it's really important for our industry that we um, go back to the table and make sure uh, we 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 get what we need to get to um, uh, to to make sure that folks can get firmly back on uh, ground here and uh, and and really just uh, complete what Congress already started, uh, and so uh, we're very hopeful as we go into September and October or September that we get this done quickly, wouldn't you think? Absolutely. And, and I, I think it's it's evident that the, the support in D.C. for uh, for the legislation is we have both a Democratic proposal and a Republican proposal. proposal. Very rarely in these times do we have uh, similar proposals from the same party. So that, that's absolutely a good step. And, and just the, you know, the political world is starting to, to reawaken after a little bit of a, a sleepy August. You know, we have the mayoral race. Uh, the preliminary happening in September. We have Congress. Once they come back in, uh, we're only two months away from, a year away from the 2022 midterms. So there's always something happening uh, both locally and federally, uh, government-wise, and, and something to keep an eye on. Yeah. And our work is never done. Our work is never done. And the good news is we, we got a, a, a trillion-dollar infrastructure deal, bipartisan infrastructure deal, through the Senate in, in the second week of August. And, uh, you know, who would have thought that 19... Uh, 
uh, Republican senators would have gone along with that. So it, it certainly provides us hope as we come into the fall here. And, uh, and, and again, like you said, uh, we, we really had strong bipartisan support. Uh, last time around, we just need to get this done. Steve, today, uh, who do you have on the show and, and what can we look forward to hearing about? We have a great young voice in the restaurant industry, Arpit Patel. He owns Barrymore in Newton Center, hotspot. People love it. It's chic. Uh, he's going to offer some insight on what he's been doing. And he kind of has an interesting path to the restaurant industry. So he's going to shed a little bit on his history. Well, that's great news. I look forward to hearing that. Kerry, how about yourself? You got... Uh, uh, a special guest coming, I think, from the West Coast, right? Yeah, I, I, and no better time, right? I mean, we've just gone through this incredible staffing uh, 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 pandemic, for lack of a better term. And I have Ma Michaela Mendelson, who is the CEO of El Poloco franchise out in California. But more importantly, she started TransCan Work, and it's a, it's a foundation, a nonprofit that uh, promotes uh, transgender training and education and, and promoting uh, job fairs to move uh, transgender and LGBTQ uh, folks into the workplace. Uh, she's awesome. She's a dynamo. Uh, and I can't wait to have a conversation with her. Yeah, Carrie and I both had the honor of uh, uh, seeing her and hearing from her uh, at a national conference down in D.C. And uh, and we kept up the relationship with her. And, uh, and, and uh, Carrie, I think that was uh, great that you were able to uh, invite her to be on here and, and uh, it's really just a precursor of things to come because I know you've you've also uh, asked her to uh, participate in the New England Food Show, and that's exciting as well. So yeah, we look forward to her being out there in April and uh, and and giving us a, a great uh, talking. Great, so. great. Well, uh, this morning I have um, a really special uh, local guest uh, and, and celebrity. I'll call her I'll call her a celebrity. Uh, you know, Rhonda Coleman was um, uh, administrative assistant for a uh, management consulting for, firm. Uh, called McKinsey over in uh, in uh, Cambridge, and uh, her boss left the company uh, because he decided um, he wanted to step out on his own and start brewing his grandfather's recipe for uh, beer uh, in his garage. And uh, he started doing it, and 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 uh, realized early on that uh, he didn't know the industry, he didn't know bars, he didn't know. Uh, package stores. He didn't know anything. He knew good beer, uh, but he said, I, I need to really find someone that can help me with that. And he called his uh, former administrative assistant and said, hey, Rhonda, you like to go out at night and uh, and have fun at these uh, bars and nightclubs and restaurants. And I'm wondering if you'd come over and help me uh, pitch my beer and, and get them to try it. And um, I think Rhonda thought about it for about 13 seconds and said, uh, hey, I can have fun. I can go out and uh, get paid to sort of, and I don't know how much pay was in a, in a startup back then, but uh, get paid to go out and pitch my uh, a beverage uh, to this industry. And, um, you know, the story is pretty, uh, pretty uh, significant because uh, Jim Cook would tell you today, that Boston Beer never would have made it. Sam Adams never would have gotten off the ground if it wasn't for her efforts, uh, if it wasn't for her success. Uh, as the two of them pedaled the, the, the car up and down Newbury Street and Boylston Street and walked in the front doors of uh, these restaurants and asked them to try this brand new beer. And uh, uh, he points to her as single-handedly being the most important hire that he ever made. She was hire number two. Uh, and uh, and she had a long, terrific career there. Then she got the entrepreneurial bug and went out and started her own uh, thing and and uh, had a couple of startups that uh, you know were different different at the at that point in time. Uh, you know, put caffeine in beer and uh, different different sort of uh, stories. And it ultimately led her to um, her passion, which is whiskey, uh, and it always has been. And uh, and distilled spirits. And she's opened Boston Harbor Distillery. Uh, a few years back now, uh, she brews a, a whole line of products, and um, and she's a terrific advocate for the industry and a terrific uh, supporter of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association and certainly our educational foundation. I'd like to welcome Rhonda to the show this morning. Thanks for having me, Bob. It's always great talking to you. Rhonda, one of my favorite people in the whole world, uh, and I mean that uh, with with all all true uh, all truth behind it, and all respect for you as a person, you as a uh, entrepreneur, and you as a leader in the hospitality industry and the greater Boston and New England market. Frankly, so uh, I'm excited well, to spend time with you. 
It takes one to know one. Oh, geez, here we go. All right. Well, listen. <laughs> as I talked about in the in in the intro here a little bit, um, do me a favor, and I know the story, um, but but tell give the listeners the the two minute version of how you moved from an administrative assistant at a at a business consulting company and uh, and and then end up at VP VP of sales uh, for <laughs> for an adult beverage company that really changed the entire industry if you would well i always say it's being in the right place at the right time or dumb luck whatever i told my dad all those years going to bars and loving whiskey would pay off someday and i guess they did but <laughs> I, you know Really, it's kudos to Jim Cook, who probably anybody listening to this podcast knows uh, who Jim is. He's uh, the founder of the Boston Beer Company. Um, he's the sixth consecutive oldest son to be a brewer in his family, uh, though he took a different path. And he ended up with three Harvard degrees and was a management consultant for Boston Consulting Group. And when he decided to start a beer company in Boston, because there was really a white space for great beer coming out of this area, um, I was, you know, moonlighting as a bartender and a waitress at night. And I was his uh, one of he was one of seven guys I worked for. And uh, he just knew about beer and business. And I obviously knew about bars. I was coming in a little late, maybe a little hungover, but <laughs> I um, was really good at what I did. And I'm born and raised here in these parts. And I just, uh, I love Boston and I love the restaurant scene. And so it was a match made in heaven. Yeah, it was really great. And, and you know, things happen for a reason. And, you know, and, and, and I said it before, he has clearly uh, said it on too many occasions and, and certainly privately and publicly to me, uh, with me, that uh, you were the single most important hire he ever made, and and I know uh, it was a great job for you, and it, and you know you had your early education in, in in our industry, and you knew the ins and outs and what it was going to take. So, what role did restaurants play in that story? Well, restaurants to me play a role in every great brand story um, because I think you know I'm the old school marketer in that uh, the restaurants really help build the brands and it's the communication with the bartenders and multiplying yourself and the brand values through the, the bartenders and the, the wait staff and, and the management who allows you to take up their real estate. Um, it's, they're so important to the backbone of, of any brand. And I just love that environment. So for me, it was easy for Jim you know, he he was traveling a lot. He had two small kids. He was married. I used to have to move him around the room back in the early days because, you know, he just didn't really know his way around. Um, <laughs> and those, you know, those were in the days of happy hours and, you know, five deep at the bar. So if you grow up in, in Boston in a drinking town, you know how to handle yourself, I think. Well, he couldn't have had a better mentor to get him through the through the crowds and to the decision makers and and to talking to the people that he needed to. And I know literally the both of you in the earliest stages uh, loaded up the car and drove up Newbury Street, Boylston Street, uh, down to Faneuil Hall and literally walked in the front door with, with the case of beer and said, can you try this? Isn't that true? It, it is, actually. I'll take it one step further. We both had um, briefcases with cold packs in them. My briefcase was actually a Lancome bag that you get for free when you buy makeup. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we had these cold packs in there. And these the very first days, it was a bottle of black and white label that said Sample Brew, Samuel Adams Boston Lager. Wow. I wish I had one of those for my collectibles. That's for sure. Um, all right. So you, you, ha you carve out a great career there. It's, a, it's, a, it's certainly a terrific part of, this, of your life story. But then the entrepreneurial bug hits you. And, and I know you, you had a couple of ventures um, before uh, we get to the, to, the, to the latest round. So walk us through that, if you would. Well, you know, I have to say, when Jim asked me to help him start a beer company, my reaction was, geez, Jim, you know what? I don't drink beer. I drink whiskey. Mm -hmm. And he, he promised that uh, I would make something, that he would make something that I liked. And of course he did. Um, but as we grew as a company, you know, I, I was executive vice president. He and I shared an office to the day I left the company. We, It was really fantastic. And I just loved that 
um, you know, it was, I was energized every day to get out of bed, but then we went public and that's what, you know, companies do sometimes. And it, it of course changed the culture a bit and it changed the company and we were kind of screwing it down tighter. And I realized that I really love building things. Um, and it, though it's really hard and it's really expensive, but I love that. And so I left, I kind of stepped off my throne as the, as the <laughs> queen of beer, as one article said, I thought it was pretty good. And um, I started another beer company. Not I didn't leave to do that, but I got inspired to do that by Jim's Brewing Consultant. And anyway, New Century Brewing Company was born and I had a beer called Edison and it was great tasting light beer, the same stats as a Bud Light, uh, but really, really well made. And I launched that on the eve of 9-11. So that was a huge setback because I launched in Boston and New York. Mm -hmm. like really. And, um, you know, and, and what I do is I, I love to innovate. I uh, created um, a beer called Moonshot because I was looking around me and thinking, you know, watching what people were consuming. And it was clearly, and this was in the early 2000s, it was really a caffeinated story of um, Starbucks and Red Bull and even Mountain Dew, uh, which we learned today has kind of come full circle. <laughs> uh, boy, has it ever, right? <laughs> like, who would have thought? But anyway, I digress. And I call up Dr. Oades, who was, again, Jim's brewing consultant. He was 80 years old at the time. And I asked him if he could make me a beer with caffeine. Well, he hung up the phone on me and I called him back and I walked him through the business opportunity, which is basically $100 billion worth of beer consumed annually annually in the United States. And if you want a little pick me up as a beer drinker, you need to leave. So I we created Moonshot 69. It was the year the astronauts landed on the moon, 69 milligrams of caffeine and went through that whole gauntlet of being the first to do it. We had a patent in four countries and adding caffeine to beer and ale. And then as my luck would have it, just as it was ready to take off, um, poor Loco got us all shut down. Right. It's that crap in a can. And um, unfortunately, uh, it was Moonshot, Four Loco, and another thing called Pan Panther Juice were the only things um, banned since Prohibition. <laughs> so I got that going for me. Boy, the and queen of beer has got banned products. I mean, boy, you've really come full circle, haven't you? I have, but you know, I when life hands you lemon, I lemons, I make whiskey because yeah. it was that event when the FDA came in and said no more moonshot, um, or at least with caffeine, you know, you got to take the caffeine out, which is ridiculous. But that's another story. I, you know, I just lost heart of the beer business. That's something yeah. I had been in the forefront of craft for so long, and but it led me to really my first true love, and what I'm really passionate about is making whiskey in Boston and filling that white space for great whole grain whiskey, which is the same thing we did with Sam Adams right here out of my beloved city of Boston. So talk to us about Boston Harbor Distillery and, and, you know, and really living your dream and, and doing what you told your dad, what, which was you loved whiskey and, you know, and, and here you are and even, and you told Jim the same thing. So here you are and, and talk to us about Boston Harbor Distillery. And I think it's one of the coolest spots to have a, 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 a distillery or any type of business. A, the building is just beautiful for anybody that hasn't been there. You got to get there, but kind of walk us through the, 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 how you got there and, and what you're doing. And, and let's talk about that because it's, I think the, the most exciting chapter of your life so far. Well, thank you. Besides um, family and kids and all that stuff. I mean, obviously yeah. that's pretty important too. And I've met them. They're great people. I, I get it. And, um, you know, I, well, you know, I can talk all day about this because I love it so much, but, um, no, I, I feel like I've come full circle. I feel like I've been training for this role as founder and CEO of Boston Harbor Distillery my whole career. And it feels so right and so authentic. And I've just been inspired by my surroundings. And if people haven't heard of Boston Harbor Distillery, or even if you haven't, you don't know where the hell it is, it really is a hidden gem and we are located on the southernmost waterfront of Boston Harbor, right behind the gas tank on the expressway. Um, so you've probably been driving by it <laughs> for decades. And uh, we're on this 18-acre peninsula 
that has been uh, the center of entrepreneurial commerce since the mid-1800s. And the building that I'm in uh, was, was built in 1859 by this guy, Silas Putnam, who autom automated the manufacture of the hut-forged horseshoe nail and had government contracts so supplied horseshoe nails to both sides of the Civil War. So that's really how this this port got here. And uh, it has, so I named my whiskey after Putnam. Putnam Whiskey. Um, Putnam Whiskey, that's it. And his the, this guy, Silas's uncle, was uh, the Revolutionary War hero, General Israel Putnam, who he graces our label. Um, and he was born in Danvers, Mass, in Putnam Pantry. If anybody's from the North Shore, you'd have to go by there. Um, and I grew up in Lynn and Peabody, so Danvers was perfectly situated. And I used to go to the Putnam Pantry for, you know, ice cream and penny candy kind of things. But um, so I, I love the fact that I got an opportunity to tie back to the history of not only Boston, but America and to showcase what um, great whole grain whiskey making is and can taste like. And, um, and I say whole grain because we don't make bourbon here at Boston Harbor Distillery, although it is the poster child for American whiskey. Mm -hmm. And there's a big bourbon boom going on. But by law, it has to be made with corn. And most people don't realize that um, you know, there are different styles of whiskey and there's lots of rules. In fact, bourbon is the most regulated business in the country uh, and lots of deep rooted. But the, the backbone of it is that it needs to be made with corn. And of course, being at the forefront of craft beer, it was really an anti-corn story. Mm -hmm. This really is an ingredient story. And I think that's really the, the root of what craft is, it's all about ingredients and true craftsmanship and passion that goes into the bottles. Well, and I'll tell you, um, and Rhonda knows this very well, I am a huge fan. I enjoy the product immensely uh, and uh, have have been a, uh, a sampler and, a, and, and, in fact, a raving fan for a long time. Uh, and, uh, and because it's a great tasting product, it's a great sipping product, uh, there's some terrific recipes that you have, uh, and some other, uh, you, you have other lines now that you've brought on. Talk a little bit about that. It's not just uh, whiskey anymore, is it? Right. Um, so just, you know, back to the inspiration from the entrepreneurs that had commerce in my, my very same building when, when the car came in and there was no need for horseshoe nails any longer, Putnam went out of business and the next notable entrepreneur to have commerce here was the George Lawley shipyard. And we're actually uh, Lawley Street borders uh, where I am. And um, they're famous for building America's Cup winning yachts. So um, my labels for my gin and my rums are Lawleys and they have a big sailboat on it. In this building, in my building, they built minesweepers for World War II. They too had government contracts. So, uh, and the rums are, you know, again, more laws, but we use 100% molasses, which is New England style. You know, you've heard about the molasses flood and all that um, because the triangle trade days are dark days of, of slaves and and ammunition and molasses were, was on those ships as well. So uh, that's great. The gin's fantastic. And then the last notable entrepreneur to have commerce here was the Seymour's Ice Cream Factory. They were they were famous for the Nutty Buddy. Um, and we have our confectionery line of this maple cream liqueur and uh, an all-natural coffee liqueur that are fantastic. We just came out with this ready-to-drink espresso martini that if you're a restaurant and you want to have consistency and quality um the production values there that the, it's awesome and then lastly i know one of your favorites mm -hmm. Bob, is my new demon seed whiskey <sighs> spicy and, and is, hot it is delicious it's all about the heat and um it's this roller coaster of different variations of spice from the scorpion peppers and spice from the rye and spice from the fresh ginger. And they're nicely blended together with uh, 
real maple syrup from Vermont. And uh, that ends up, you know, kind of saving your mouth afterwards. But, you know, if you like if you like something hot and you like it spicy, um, Demon Seed's for you. I cannot recommend Demon Seed more. It is, uh, it is delicious. It's different. And I, I guarantee you... If you like spice in your life, you're going to love this product. And, uh, you know, uh, again, I, I, I highly recommend you try it. So, um, so Rhonda, you know, life's thrown you some obstacles here, and they, th- they threw another one at you sort of as you're, as you're rocking and rolling here, the little pandemic that we've come through. Uh, first of all, I'm so glad to see you on the other side of it. And, and you really had to uh, innovate during that time. And, and um you know, I, I think, you know, hopefully uh, we've got it in the rearview mirror and uh, and now it's going to go, you know, it's it's full full force forward, correct? That's it. I mean, as you know, again, when life hands you lemons, you make whiskey and that's, we really, um, you know, honed our craft in the last year and a half. You know, things slowed down and we had an opportunity to really focus on Next Evolution brands, which is where Espresso Martini and our Putnam Barrel Aged Old Fashioned came from. Our gin came out of that. Um, lots of good, good things. So our business, you know, is starting to come back. I'm, I am a little concerned with the new reports that I'm hearing, um, but we can only control the controllables. Mm-hmm. And I, throughout my lifetime, you know, launching my, my, um, my new new century brewing company on the eve of 9-11 and then you know having my moonshot beer banned um from being made and you know having a little bout personally with cancer and and giving life to three children i mean there's just so much that goes on so i have been training for this like i understand you know perseverance and just putting your head down and just keep keep finding a way and that's what we're doing here but you know the the good news is we've opened the doors now just six years ago it's a really hidden gem and the people that find their way um really make it a special place and they're blown away and everybody says how come i haven't heard about this before well you have now yeah and you'll hear a lot more about it and thanks to you and everything that the mass restaurant association and your members do on behalf of, of brands like me uh, and mine and the Package Stores Association. Everybody's starting to rally a little bit uh, uh, behind uh, smaller businesses. Like, you know, it's it's part of the vernacular and everybody sort of talks about it, but I think people are starting to walk their talk a little and, bit. And I think people coming out of this, there's a, there's a renewed uh, interest and passion for buying local, buying uh, uh, f- you know, f- from from our neighbors and and using locally sourced products, it's it's more important than ever. And you know, I got to give you a plug. I mean, um, a shout out on this. And and you know, during the worst days our industry's ever seen, that that you know, uh, you you were finding your way through. Um, you put together a fundraiser um, around the Putnam product uh, that. Uh, uh, you know, really went to the, you know, raising a, a ton of funds uh, for the future of our industry and and and, and was put forth to the students um, that are going to make up management as we go forward in the educational foundation. And uh, that was, at any time, that was incredible. But at the worst times that the industry went through, to, for you to step up like that was really, really special. And we thank you again for that. Well, we called it Rise Up, and um, there's a reason for that because I just couldn't sit there and watch all, yeah. all the all the restaurants. I mean, it was terrible. So, uh, thank you for allowing me to partner with you on that and to be the recipient. And you're going to see Rise Up 2.0 coming again soon. Oh, God love you. All right, let's move to the lightning round. You ready? Oh my God, maybe. All right. Today's lightning round is brought to you by our partners at Sprague Energy. First question. Tom Brady or Bill Belichick? Oh, uh, Tom Brady. Tom Brady it is. Um, I'm not going to ask you your favorite restaurant because I know you could never answer that, but what's, what's your favorite genre of restaurant? When you guys go out, what do you, what's your favorite genre of restaurant? Oh, I love sitting around dining. Um, so, yeah. Okay. It's, you know. 
what's the genre? I don't know. But like I was at a pub last night. I love that too. So it depends what you're in the mood for. That's what's so great about restaurants. There you go. Medium rare, medium well, or vegetarian? Medium rare. That is the right answer. Thank you very much. (laughs) Not that there's right or wrongs, but that is right. Julia Child, Ming Tsai, Rachel Ray, or Gordon Ramsay? Oh, um, well, Ming Tsai. Ming Tsai. It's Saturday. You have nothing to do, nothing on your schedule. What are we going to find you doing? Going out to eat. And we appreciate that, too. And final question. What is the team most likely to be in the next duck, war, duck tour parade through the streets of Boston? What is the next one? What is the, most, the, the next team that is most likely to be in a duck tour parade, championship parade, through the streets of Boston? Oh, my. Well, um, hmm. Celtics? You say that with a question mark. I'll say that you put an exclamation point on it. You like the new Celtics coach. You like the new Celtics direction. Some would question the savvy of of signing uh, Marcus Smart for another four-year extension, but not you. You think it's a great move, and it's putting us over the top. I'll go with that as our answer. So, listen, Rhonda, I appreciate uh, everything you do for our industry. Uh, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but... You were the MRA um, Business Partner of the Year uh, with with your uh, um, uh, all your efforts in, in supplying our restaurants with great product, uh, locally sourced, and uh, all your efforts for the Educational Foundation. Um, and and they were you've started your efforts uh, with the MRA long before uh, Rise Up, and and it just continued, obviously. So. Uh, Thank you for everything you do for our industry. Thank you for who you are. And uh, we wish you and the team the best of luck going forward. Well, thank you, too. Cheers to you all. Cheers. I'm Steve Clark, Vice President of Government Affairs for the Mass Restaurant Association. And this is live with From the Hill. Welcome back to the Together We Win podcast. Today, we are joined with Arpit Patel. He's the owner of Barrymore Restaurant in Newton Center, a hotspot. Arpit, thanks for coming on the MRA podcast. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, you have an exciting time, exciting restaurant, Newton. Uh, people love it. Uh, so many great reviews. Uh, I want to go back in, in the past a little bit. It's, it's 2018. You're an Eisenberg School of Graduate. Go Minutemen, by the way. I'm a UMass grad as well. Uh, you're in the finance world. All of a sudden, you get the itch to come to the restaurant world. What happened? Yeah, so a, bi- a big driver of me kind of leaving the, the finance corporate world was just kind of kind of in search of doing doing my own thing. At that point, I had kind of no idea where my my search would take me. And it obviously took me here to Newton Center. And and the biggest thing was trying to bring my own culture to the table, which obviously a restaurant's a place where people go to celebrate and kind of go out and have fun. So it was, it was kind of the the perfect transition from being behind the desk to kind of being on the front lines, kind of spreading that cheer and happiness, but also kind of being that venue for people to go when they are in fact mourning or, or not. It's, it's an environment where people go to celebrate all, all aspects of life or to mourn all aspects of life. It's, it's full circle. And, and that's what we always say in the hospitality industry of, of we're there when people are celebrating the best times, we're there when people are celebrating the worst times. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, I imagine it's a little bit different stress, you know, different stresses in the finance world and the, in the hospitality world, but, uh, and also probably different times of the day, but, um, you know, quite the change uh, going from, from that type of environment to, to the restaurant industry. Um, Bringing it up ahead into into the pandemic, you know, you, you've been open. For, you were open for a couple of years. All of a sudden, March of twenty happens. Uh, what are you seeing coming out of the pandemic? What are you seeing in your industry? Um, how's the recovery been going for you? Yeah, so for sure. So we actually we opened up seven months before the pandemic. Um, so we we're still kind of building our brand, building our following. Um, so we weren't. We made the decision to shut down for the for the months where uh, dining in wasn't allowed. Um, so we shut down when it was a takeout only period, just because we didn't feel we had the um, kind of the the following or the kind of ability to pivot and survive only on a takeout model. Um, we anticipated that cost would be much higher if we tried to operate versus uh, hibernate for the months until allowed to do uh, dining in again. So once June 8th hit, we were allowed to do outdoor dining in 2020. We opened up with 
nine cables. We were throwing cables wherever we could. We were bringing out our outside ta- uh, inside cables outside, kind of trying to captivate whatever we want, uh, whatever crowd we could. Um, the problem wasn't people coming out to restaurants at that point. It was space um, because outdoor dining, especially in Massachusetts, is still a relatively new concept. We had some of it but not every single restaurant I had. And now almost every single restaurant has some sort of patio space. So it's definitely a big change for the kind of the culture and society to see how much um, outdoor dining demand there is. I think that demand is here to stay with or without the pandemic. Um, so from an operational standpoint, that adds a whole different kind of service area. You go from having your indoor section to increases your um if indoor and outdoor both are happening at the same time obviously right now outdoor dining still is a preference um but the the biggest challenge is the infrastructure for a restaurant uh you have to upgrade your internet you have to figure out ways to kind of service guests outside while while kind of meeting the demand you're you're taking on tons more steps obviously so every single thing you used to do inside now doing outside takes a lot more time um, and kind of pair that up with kind of the labor shortage in the restaurant industry. It's, it's definitely was challenging, is challenging, and going into fall as more people are going to back be back in town in their hometowns and they go out for, for dinner or lunch. It's definitely something where staffing is something we definitely have a big concern around. Definitely a huge issue. Um, you know, we're hearing that across the Commonwealth, whether it's the Cape, whether it's Western Mass, whether it's the city. Staffing is obviously an issue. But yeah, we talked about, you, you mentioned outdoor dining. We talk about that at the MRA all the time. One of the positives of this pandemic is going to be the proliferation of outdoor dining. Uh, you know, it was never really something that, that diners in Massachusetts embraced. You know, we have, we have such bad months, but and then everyone just realized how awesome it is to get out there and be outdoors uh, in, in New England from, and you know, hardy New Englanders, we might be able to get out there first week in April and might be able to go all the way until, you know, Thanksgiving. And we saw some adaptions to uh, heaters and, and vents and those type of things. So outdoor dining is definitely going to be here. And I know Newton has has done really well to help the operators expand their outdoor dining operations. And, and, and that's good. And that's, that's a credit to them. And it's it's a true partnership between the restaurant and the, and the, and the municipality to be able to expand those options and, and make them available. Um, you talked about some of the changes that, that you had to experience with outdoor dining. What other changes to your business model have you had to think about incorporating coming out of the pandemic and looking ahead, whether it's a year ahead or five years down the road? Do you see any other changes that, that might come into the model? Yeah, I think I think the, the biggest change is the added service area. So if you have if you're running both indoor dining and outdoor dining, some restaurants may have doubled their space. Um, some restaurant kitchens may be built to handle that, some restaurants might have to look at changes to their physical infrastructure to better handle that demand. Um, but it then comes down to changing your staffing model from kind of a full-time staffing model to, hey, these seven months when the weather is better, our demand is going to be much higher. So how do we how do we then envision a staffing model where we can one try to maintain and retain staff, but also gear up and kind of take it down a notch when the winter months hit. Um, so I think the, the the people in the business is definitely definitely the most important aspect, and it's also the most challenging aspect. Um, feeling comfortable to make physical infrastructure changes is where I'm kind of held up. Um, there's too much uncertainty in wet, whether whether outdoor dining is going to persist past the pandemic, whether whether these extra capacities will remain, whether people will come back to dine indoors, especially right now we're seeing a slight a slight deviation and change and people now are sitting outside. We, it was raining Monday. We finally were able to reopen seven days a week, our first Monday back uh, this past Monday. And it was raining, nothing hard, but we had probably 15 tables outside and one table inside. Um, so it's kind of speaking to how, how, how we're always going to be adapting to what um, the consumer wants. And right now, especially with the news cycle, it seems like more people are willing to just sit outside in the rain, which I don't think would happen in a non-pandemic world, 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, that happened to us the other night. We were going out to dinner for my wife's birthday, and we walked out, and they said, well, it might rain. We're like, well, you know what? It's all right. We'll be okay outside. Uh, you know, just just a strange – it's the New Englander. We all kind of think things yeah. differently. Um, <laughs> so you are big in the community uh, with philanthropic efforts. Uh, you talk about it uh, as part of your business model. You, you are very active and vocal in giving back to the community. Talk about some of your philanthropic efforts that you do and uh, what's important to you. Yeah, so I guess the the biggest uh, value kind of when we opened up was we always wanted to be kind of an integral part of our community. We always want to kind of give back. Um, restaurants can be a staple to their community and neighborhood, and we've always wanted to be that neighborhood bar. Um, obviously, every every restauranter is gonna is gonna try to elevate their food game, elevate their beverage game, but we want to kind of really make a present our presence heard in the community. So we launched with a permanent fundraiser um, through in our beer program where we have a dedicated tap line called pull for charity where we donate three dollars per pint poured to rotate uh, rotating local charity so we've done uh done it to anywhere from like the new england hemophilia association to the local food pantries to um some dog dog charities um so that's kind of been a, a good way for us to connect with our guests and with our community um and kind of give give people a reason to cheat and have a beer on a Monday. That's unbelievable. That's all. I mean, you're you're in a community where, where philanthropic is above and beyond. I mean, the hospitality industry is always giving, always trying to give. Where can they give more in their communities? Where can they give back? How can they help their employees? I mean, we saw it when the pandemic happened. You know, we had we had people making sure that they could you know could pay the rent and pay the mortgage and keep their family fed and just just really working out for each other. And that's one of the best things of this industry is is how we look out for for each other and how we take care of our own. Uh, and that, that's a great program. I love that uh, the the three dollar. I love the justification for a beer on Monday anyway, but, but giving it to a, <laughs> yeah. uh, a charitable cause is even, is even better. Um, magic wand question. What's one issue, if you had a magic wand that's facing your industry that you could wave the wand and have the problem go away? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think this has been an issue before the pandemic. I think the pandemic's been bringing more of a light on it, but there's a tremendous wages uh, dis- discrepancy um, in the industry, whether it's from your front of house versus back of house. Um, I think, I think the entire the entire issue around kind of not having to be able to share tips with the back of house creates this wage discrepancy. Um, I, I would like the industry to be seen as skilled workers versus unskilled workers um, versus front of house versus back of house because that's just naturally been what's what's kind of come across, and that's mainly because of the tipping culture, the tips go to front of house employees and all of them are working hard. They're, they're all working for, for this money, but there's a big misunderstanding between wanting to kind of elevate and increase kind of the improved livelihood improvement of everyone in the, uh, in the, in the restaurant, including kitchen versus paying a livable wage. Um, I think people forget we are already paying um, the kitchen, what the federal government forecasts is as a livable wage, but, people aren't working in the restaurant industry just for minimum or slightly above minimum wage that's livable. Um, most front of house employees are making good money. Most kitchen employees make decent base salaries, but it's about what gets them there. We can't forget that these employees are working their Friday nights, their weekends. A lot of them are giving up spending time with their family and friends. They're giving up watching their kids grow up. So I, I want people to see this industry not as something that's kind of a bare bones get by job, but it's 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 a job that people are making sacrifices, so they should be paid accordingly. Um, giving up a weekend shouldn't be justified as a minimum wage or a or a living wage job uh, or or a job based on the subjectivity of the consumer. Um, talking about wage discrimination, that that kind of goes to the core of it. It's not allowed in any other industry. Yeah. And you know what, even the consumer, I think if you ask most consumers, they would think that everyone in the restaurant should share in the gratuity. They know that it's, it takes a team to get the, the meal to that person. And it's, it's, it's always a, a conversation we have with our, with our elected leaders and, you know, you know, should, should the, should the restrictions be this strict and, you know, look, look at the X, Y, Z revenue that's coming in. Let's be able to share that. And, you know, we, we talk about, um, the industry of choice. It's the industry of choice for many people. And, and culinary arts is a respected career choice. And we've come a long way as an industry. We still have some ways to go. But, you know, I, I think we, we've certainly come a long way. And, and, and addressing those issues are, are certainly important. And having restaurant operators that, that 
that's important to have them speak up. So, so that's definitely yeah, an important I think, subject. I think the pandemic opens the path for these conversations with our elected officials, which definitely is one of the rare positives of the pandemic, again, where more, more and more people are likely and willing to create change now. Absolutely. So what's next? Uh, staying with one location, keeping it and just making that run efficient. You're looking to expand. What, what, what's next for your world? Yeah, for, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm staying, staying put at this one location, kind of, kind of seeing where, where these uh, different changes take us and kind of just focusing on, focusing on this one and trying to, trying to really get back to, um, back to our community involvement. Obviously it's tough to get the community involved when uh, a lot of indoor gatherings still aren't happening. Um, a big part of what we love doing here was to host a variety of charity events, whether it's through like fundraising for the Boston Marathon or other kind of big events like the Pan Mass. Um, those events virtually disappeared because of the pandemic. So we're just kind of hoping the world goes back to normal. We can kind of focus on, uh, so to say, the the fun things and kind of uh, find a stabilized business model where we're not evolving, adapting every week. Exactly. Well, R.P. Patel, a young dynamo in the industry. We look forward to seeing where you're going to go and what, what's, what's up ahead. Uh, check out Barmore in Newton Center. Thank you very much for joining the MRA podcast. Together we win. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. This is Kerry Miller, the Vice President of Operations for the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, and this is What's Next. Today I have a very timely and important guest. Michaela Mendelson is a transgender activist, public speaker, businesswoman with over 40 years entrepreneurial leadership experience. She is currently the CEO of Polo West Corp, a franchise group of El Polo Loco restaurants. Michaela was chosen as a 2018 nation's face of diversity for the restaurant industry and led the 2018 LA Pride Parade as a Grand Marshal. As a part of her career with El Polo Loco, Michaela spent nine years as the president of their National Franchise Association. Michaela founded the organization Trans Can Work, whose mission is building a culture nationwide for transgender people to thrive in the workplace. Michaela speaks across the nation on LGBTQ issues to create awareness and foster change. She serves on the board of the Trevor Project, whose mission is to eradicate suicide in LGBT youth, as well as the Founders Council of the Williams Institute on LGBT Research Program of the UCL Law School. She's a proud parent of three grown children, now lives with her partner, Carmel, their five-year-old son, Isidore, and their recent addition, baby, Liva. Livia, I'm sorry. Um, Mikkel, welcome to What's Next. Hi, Carrie. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mikhail, it's a very interesting time that we're living in. And, and as we exit the COVID pandemic, the restaurant industry heads directly into staffing and talent shortage. Has the current lack of talent prompted more employers to embrace seeking talent in the transgender employees? Well, let me back up on that question just a bit. I was reading a poll uh, uh, sample taken by, uh, at least cited in a restaurant news article this morning. And, uh, and, on of hourly workers to find out what are the most important things uh, for them to, to come back to work or to choose a job. Because, um, and there were three items that stood out uh, in this order. First was higher wages. Um, and um, that, that may have also been uh, different in different areas of the country because minimum wage is different, different places. But um, part of that, uh, a subsection of that was unemployment, that uh, wages that uh, people had to be enticed to be making more um, uh, than they would be on unemployment or enough more to want to come back to work. Another was dependable scheduling uh, in the restaurant industry. A lot of people come into the restaurant industry to work because they want flexible scheduling to work around their schooling or childcare, but it seems to be an important issue with um, with people that uh, want to be able to depend on their schedules. The third item, which I'll, I'll get into, uh, which kind of helps answer your question, is workplace culture. Yep. And um, and part of workplace culture, uh, according to some important studies a few years ago, is uh, inclusivity. And LGBT inclusivity um, was cited by over 70% of people that uh, was important to them to work in a place that was inclusive. 
of of the LGBT community. So I think um, you know uh, people want to work in a culture that's supportive of the community, but um, it's also a it happens also to be a great pool of employees to look to for employers. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm a restaurant owner. I have over 200 employees and I'm struggling like the rest of you, um, you know, to keep enough employees. Uh, although I think I've learned a few things. And one of the things that we do is we do tap into being transgender myself. Uh, you know, I've tapped into uh, that, um, that pool of employees that most of us aren't. Um, in fact, transgender um, unemployment is three times as high as uh, other categories the rest of the country. So this is a pool of employees you can look to. Uh, you, you can make it clear um, uh, on your website, if you have one, that you're LGBT um, friendly and inclusive and everyone's welcome. Right. Uh, you can reach out to um, the uh, local organizations if you're in large cities that have LGBT centers and other LGBT organizations uh, and let them know that and, and they'll send you people as well. Um, we at one time in just six of my stores were employing over 50 transgender employees. And uh, I I want to tell you that was successful for us. Uh, it helped our business. Our, the, um, the workers got along great. We have inclusive workplaces to begin with, so everyone had each other's back. Uh, the customers loved it. They were... It was opening their hearts and minds to a new group of people in their lives. And the um, and of course, the workers really appreciated being on a level playing field right. for maybe the first time in their lives and being supported to work in their true gender identity. So, um, and by the way, the gender non-conforming segment, which we often call non-binary, is the fastest growing segment by far in the LGBT community. And um, and so that's that's part of what we call the transgender spectrum. So I, I uh, um, you know, I suggest, uh, you know, that's a, it, it's a good place for us to look for uh, employees that aren't being maybe considered by some of our peers. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and as you lead the, 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 the charge on this, I mean, is, are there best practices? How, how do we, how do we educate the employer to do the things that you just said, like, you know, uh, uh, put on their webpage that they're, uh, it's, well, we, it's, you can go to transcomwork.org. We have some info. Uh, if you have local LGBT organizations, they can help you. We also do training. If you, uh, if you send us a note at info at transcanwork.org, uh, uh, we'll talk to you about training, um, uh, uh, virtual trainings that we're now doing across the country uh, that we'll set up for you. That um, uh, it's typically an hour to an hour and a half training for your staff, uh, especially for your management. That will help you understand the, you know, the simple uh, uh, guidelines that can of understanding and and practices that can help you uh, so that you feel that you're respecting and and building a culture that can support. Uh, this possibly new segment that you haven't employed before. Awesome. I think it's a great starting point. And, and, and for us out here also, I mean, I think that's, that's something that we can promote f from our uh, perspective and, and get it out in front of our constituency for sure. Um, and again, back to your website, I, you know, I've been on it multiple times and it's a great opportunity for both employees and employers, right? I, I know that uh, not only do you provide training for employers, there's plenty for just training for employees there. There's also uh, a job uh, uh, placement uh, uh, opportunity for employees to put, you know, their their um, their their app out there. And interestingly enough, I ran through the application, and, and not only are you asking them to, um, you know, apply for a job, but you're asking them where they are are in their life cycle and uh, providing assistance. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we, we call those wraparound services. Um, you know, people from uh, our community might be more prone to uh, uh, need help in other areas of their life because of the struggles they've had with family or or, or friends uh, and coming out and, and being, you know, their authentic selves. So whether that's, um, you know, mental health, um, medical attention, hormone uh, replacement therapies or um, you know, other things they need in their life will, we help connect them. You know, we look at, we kind of 
think that we, we, we take our Africans, you know, where, where they are in life and try and help guide them if they need soft skills and trainings uh, to be more hireable and to be more successful in their work. Certain things we can supply, certain other things we, we have, you know, all the contacts to help uh, send them in the right direction and get them connected with organizations that can provide what they need. That's awesome. And as a state restaurant association, I, I want to ask how, how we can best facilitate um, helping the transgender community up in Massachusetts find, find those resources. Well, there's certainly an LGBT center there in Boston, but um, you know, we're if if you uh, reach out to our communications director, um, Bowie B O W I E at transcanwork.org. Yeah. Um, uh, Bowie would be happy to help connect you with information uh, that you know can help you in this regard. You know, or 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 connect you with other groups that can give you what you need, but we'd love to see um, the uh, you know Boston area uh, and the Boston and the uh, Massachusetts Restaurant Association take this on. Me being in California, the California Restaurant Association uh, has really embraced this, and it's been great for them. I am. I may be joining the National Restaurant uh, Association's board of directors, and uh, one of my goals will be to get information out to all the state associations if if that happens. That's a great uh, initiative. I mean, we've got a great relationship with the National Restaurant Association, and 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 over the course of the, even better over the course of the last couple of years, we've really facilitated uh, uh, on on how to act as like almost a franchise or franchisee model to get and decimate information and services for sure. And you being on the board, I think would be just an, an incredibly a great asset for the NRA, which is a good step in their direction. Thank you. Um, you know, I've been asked a couple of times to apply. I did apply this time. I've gone through an interview process. There may be more. Um, they, they'll be deciding, I think in September and I would start in January if that happens. Awesome. Uh, well, if, if, if they're listening, they should put you on. So, um, thank you. So, so one of the other things that you've done uh, in in all your spare time, it's amazing that you're well, CEO. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I have my two little kids are now two and seven. My gosh, and uh, and I have uh, three grown kids. So that's crazy. It's uh, you know, family life um, is taking on more and more. Of my I'm starting to shift over a little bit of my my uh, community work to to take care of family, but. I do want to mention, I know you want to ask about this and before we run out of time, we do have a series of national job fairs that we're doing in partnership with HRC, the Human Rights Campaign. And um, uh, the first one will be in, in LA um, on September 22nd for those uh, of your sponsors or restaurant groups that that also uh, do business in the general um, Los Angeles or Southern California area. It is virtual. Um, uh, again, I'd reach out. We, we want to sign, sign you up to have a booth. Uh, we have great software that makes it very productive, uh, virtually even easier than uh, being there in person, more efficient. And, um, uh, you can go to Bowie at transcanwork.org again, B-O-W-I-E or info at TransCanWork and put in a request for information on the job fairs. We will be moving them around the country this uh, year and into next. Um, we don't have Boston on that list yet, but uh, if we get enough requests, <laughs> uh, we're certainly, we'll get to Boston. We will get to Boston. And, uh, uh, and I particularly love the Boston area. I was in Boston about a month ago and, uh, uh, on July 1st, got to uh, watch the Boston, got to go to Fenway Park and oh, watch the Red Sox pummel the Kansas City Royals 15 to 0. That's a great game. So um, <laughs> I I, uh, I do love the Red Sox and uh, um, I love Boston. It's a great place. So interestingly enough, I think uh, the, the, we didn't talk about who was going to be on these podcasts, but we had Kevin Euclid, uh, who, uh, who has a brewery out in. Um, Northern California right now and a coffee Loma Brewery and Loma Coffee on with Bob Luz, the CEO here uh, on the podcast. Uh, he's also working on a, on a, uh, a spot on as a 
POS group out of there, but the former Red Sox player, I'm sure you recognize the name. Uh, so he's joining oh, the pod, yeah. pod, podcast That's with you. So awesome. we've got an all-star lineup. Uh, well, I've been, I, I started collecting baseball cards when I was six years old. Oh, so that's awesome. I know most of the old, old players. <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. Hey, well, listen, I know I've invited you back out uh, and hopefully you can make it for the New England Food Show to do, be a, do a diversity keynote. Uh, again, I know you've got a busy schedule and I, I truly appreciate uh, you shaving off time for this and hopefully for that. Uh, and you can get back out to Boston and it's in April, so the Sox will be back in town. So I think I could probably finagle a way for you to, you know, grab a game while you're out here. Well, hopefully they're at home playing while I'm there. And uh, if so, I'm definitely going to take you up on that. It was a, it was my first time at Fenway Park. My son and I do baseball tours. And uh, we have decided that other than our home teams park, uh, uh, Oracle Park in San Francisco, yep. Fenway Park is definitely our most favorite park in the country. We had a blast there. It was great. I also want to mention, um, please donate to Transco Work if you can. We're a nonprofit. Uh, our work is all based on donations. If you go to transcanwork.org, there's a donation uh, section there that will come up. And thank you, Carrie, for the time to speak to your listeners. It's been awesome. And, and I'm going to take and push that out to our social media channels and connect it in. And Michaela, first, I, I want to... Um, you know, I you're nothing to be admired for the, for the dedication to make a world a better place. And I don't think that uh, I, if more executives stood up for for what they believed in and uh, created causes like you have, it'd be a, it'd be a much better place. And it is because uh, because of your initiatives and Transcan work. And so, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Carrie. It's really been a pleasure. You've been listening to Together We Win, the Massachusetts Restaurant Association podcast. Produced by the Massachusetts Restaurant Association in partnership with Image Unlimited Communications and Red 13 Studios. For more information on the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, please visit themassrest.org. Thank you. You've been listening to Together We Win, the MRA podcast. For any information on this podcast or any other episode, visit us at our website, themassrest.org.